We begin a new series of sermons this morning, <clears throat> and this will take us all the way to Lent, so about nine, I think nine sermons, on the book of Daniel. And we're going to be looking at this book uh, broadly because it deals with the issues that all of us are dealing with, which is how can we function as Christians in this culture? That's the question. So how do we navigate our culture, or what often Scripture calls the world, while still remaining faithful to Christ? So that's a relevant question to all of us. But why now are we looking at Daniel? Why today? Why this season? Well, that is because we're in the midst of a very controversial election, election campaign, and whatever happens in November, literally whatever happens, there's a great chance that the church is going to be divided, uh, that we as Christians are not going to know what to think <laughs> and, and how to process it. So this is preemptive, okay? The book of Daniel is preemptive for us. We're, we're looking at the wisdom from God's Word to figure out how we as Christians are to assess what's happening around us and how we, how, how we are to navigate it as Christians in unity and in biblical wisdom. So I'm putting my cards on the table, okay? So, so I, we're going to be talking about these issues. And this is absolutely in light of election 2020. So I, I wanted to make sure that we understand what the stakes are here. And at our elder retreat, one of the issues that came up is, is how do we prepare the church? How do we as elders lead the church to deal with these very difficult issues that we're all facing as Christians in our culture today? So that's what we're dealing with from the book of Daniel. And if you've read the book of Daniel, you will know that the greatest theme of the book both the stories and the visions have to do with the conflict of two empires, two kingdoms. The whole book is structured around this idea that the kingdom of God is breaking in and the empires of the world are opposing it. So both the visions and the stories actually have to do with that. So we'll process that as we work through the book uh, chapter by chapter. So today's outline is pretty simple. We have four points. First, we'll look at the paradigm of life in exile Secondly, we'll look at the pressures of life in exile for Christians. Thirdly, we'll look at the practices we must adopt or reject if we are to be faithful to the Lord while engaging our culture. And finally, we'll look at the power, the power we need for this life in exile. Okay, so let me read to you verses 1 through 4 that it sets up the whole story. It gives us the historical context for what Daniel and his friends are going to be dealing with. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So this is the context. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the most powerful ruler at the time, king of Babylon, the new kind of this emerging empire that's gobbling up everything in sight, comes to Jerusalem, puts it under siege, and eventually conquers it, takes the sacred vessels from the temple, 
that's very symbolic. That means the Babylonian God conquered the Israelite God, and they're taking all the sacred stuff from the temple and putting them in their temple. It's as if they're co-opting that God into their pantheon. In the next few years, Jerusalem, including the temple, would be completely destroyed, and many more people would be deported to Babylon. Now, this is Daniel is in the first wave of deportation. These are the best people, the young, bright, intellectual elite, cultural elite of, of Jerusalem are taken into Babylon first, and then many, many more people are going to end up in Babylon. And for the next 70 years, God's people would live in Babylon, or as the author calls it, the land of Shinar. Now, the land of Shinar is a signal to us. It, it, it takes us back to the Genesis account of the Tower of, ba- of Babel. The Tower of Babel was this, this, this great example of idolatry, this great exa- example of rebellion against God. And so it signals to us that the Jewish people, God's people, are going to be in Babylon, this, this center of idolatry, this wicked place where God is going to be disciplining them and teaching them how to worship God the true God. Now, of course, on the one hand, the exile is a punishment for the people's disobedience and idolatry. It was promised and prophesied in other passages of Scripture before it happened. But it's also part of God's plan to bless the nations through Israel. God places His people in the most idolatrous culture to teach them to worship Him and to communicate that truth, to communicate that worship of the true God to the other nations. Jeremiah 29 contains a letter that God sends through his prophet to the exiles, to God's people in Babylon. And you'll find that God is pretty positive about their life in Babylon. God actually tells them to to build houses and to marry and to plant gardens and to pray for the welfare of the city in which he placed them for Babylon. God wants them to be an influence on the Babylonian culture. He wants them to be a positive influence, to seek the welfare of Babylon. So this is the historical background. What I'd like to suggest to us this morning is that life in exile is the paradigm the pattern, the template, the the idea that we should be using for our relationship with today's culture. We live in a time that is less like the monarchy of Israel and more like the rule of Babylon. Christianity in the West is resembling more and more the early church's life in the pagan Roman Empire of the first century. It's not surprising that in the New Testament, this metaphor of exile and living among pagan people, godless people, is brought up again and again. For example, 1 Peter 1, in verse 1, Apostle Peter addresses the church, the Gentile church that he's writing to. He's addressing them as elect exiles, Peter is defining the Christian life as life in exile, meaning that we are Christian people, we are God's people, but God has placed us in a pagan world, in a culture that is hostile to Christianity. 
And that's the paradigm, that's the picture that Scripture gives us to understand how we are to function in this culture today. So this is what I want to tell you this morning, and I want you to hear me. Welcome to Babylon. Welcome to Babylon. We are not in Israel. So if you're looking to those passages of Scripture in the Old Testament to to correlate the events of today's today's culture to, to what God did through the nation of Israel, through the godly leadership of kings, that is not our story. And that actually hasn't really been the church's story. But certainly not today. We're in exile. We're in Babylon. With all that it entails, with the idolatry around us, with the culture pressuring us away from Christ, with all the ambiguity of how to live in a culture like that as a Christian, that's where we are. So welcome to Babylon. we got to figure out, and we got to help our children figure out how to live in exile. Amen. So this book of Daniel is, is very important for us today. It is very important for the church to figure out how to live in this culture. Okay, so that's the paradigm, and we'll be developing it through the whole series. But what are the pressures of life in exile? Let's look at the tension that Daniel and his friends are experiencing in Babylon between their Christian identity, their godly identity, and the identity that the world is trying to impose on them. So look with me at verses 5 through 7. The king, so that's Nebuchadnezzar, that's the pagan king of Babylon, assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. The Babylonians were very smart. When they conquered a land, they immediately took the brightest, the most promising, the elite youth, and educated them and gave them government jobs. This is brilliant. Because when you think about a foreign nation conquering a land, what's going to happen when the new generation comes up? Generation steeped in the hatred against the oppressor. What happens? They lead a rebellion. And they're smart. And they know the land and they know their culture. And so they're going to, so it's just a matter of time until the nation that you conquer rebels against you. And who knows what's going to happen then? So the Babylonians, knowing that, they conquer the land and they take out the elite. And they put them in their own culture, in their own land. And they give them privileges, and they give them important jobs, and they educate them, and they exalt them. Who's going to lead the rebellion? All these people are now Babylonians. They don't know their language anymore. They don't know their culture anymore. They don't care about their land anymore because they have nice houses in Babylon. Do you see the brilliance of the the empire's approach to God's people? This is exactly what the world does. The world is going to take our brightest, our young, our our most promising people, and they're going to re-educate them as soon as they leave the church. 
the world is going to re-educate them, going to give them a new identity, and they're going to push them away from Christ. How do we deal with that? Well, notice all these different pressures that we are under as Christians in the culture. Uh, we'll look at Daniel and, and their example and their, his friend's example, but you will see the correlations between that and our lives as well. So first of all, they all got new names. All four original Hebrew names had to do with their connection to the Lord. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh, which is the name of God. The Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. God is incomparable. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. Now, all these names point them. Every time they speak to each other and they call each other by name, they're reminded that they belong to Yahweh. They belong to God. What does Babylon do? They're saying, we're going to give you new names so that you're not reminded of your identity. And what are the new names? All of them have to do with Babylonian deities, Babylonian gods, the idols of Babylon. Bel, Aku, Nebo, all these names of their deities are now are being embedded in their identities. Now imagine these Hebrew boys and what they must have felt because every time their name is called, they have to be reminded, I'm in Babylon. I'm in this place of idolatry. I'm in this place of wickedness. Am I serving these other gods? And their identity begins to fade. Now, secondly, they're being trained for government jobs. They were supposed to serve within the structures of the empire that put an end to Judah's national independence. <laughs> I mean, imagine. There's, a, there's an empire that comes to your land, they conquer you, they take your children, and now your children are working for the government that is, that is oppressing you. Isn't that crazy? That's what they're doing. They're, they're just bringing them in into the very structures, the political structures of Babylon. Thirdly, they're being educated in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, new language and new literature mean new culture. The Chaldeans are the dominant ethnic group in Babylon. Babylon is comprised of many ethnicities, but the Chaldeans are, are most important because Nebuchadnezzar is Chaldean by ethnicity. Chaldeans are known as experts in magic. So their literature includes omens and incantations and prayers and myths, as well as math and astrology and those kinds of things. And so these kids, this, these teenagers, are brought into Babylon. They're given new names. They're, almost, they're promised new jobs. They're being educated. And what they're learning is not only foreign culturally to them, but they're learning these abominations. You know, for Israelite, you're learning magic. You're learning how to interpret dreams. I mean, this, this is... This is the assault of the culture on them is almost unimaginable. Talk about a new cultural identity that is being thrust on them. Fourthly, they're being offered food from the king's table. Now, we'll deal with the reason why they refuse to eat at the, at the king's table, but we'll deal with that in a few minutes. But it's clear that the purpose of this is to connect them to the king. Now, every day, they're eating these lavish, gourmet meals that are being sent 
from the royal palace to them. And they're getting used to the favors of the king. They're getting used to these really nice, pleasurable things in life. And all of that is coming from the king of Babylon. So their dependence on him grows. Their loyalty to him grows. And then finally, they were also likely given a new sexual identity. Daniel and his friends were probably, I would say most likely, made eunuchs as many court officials were at the time. There are actually prophecies in Isaiah uh, that when, when Judah is conquered, that the king's children, the, the, the people in the royal household and nobility is going to be taken into Babylon and they would become eunuchs in the court of the Babylonian king. Now, I want us to use that. This is an example. This is a, a narrative that helps us understand how the world influences our identity. And I want us to see how systematic, how relentless, how strategic are the pressures on Christians to conform and embrace their cultural identities. Living in exile as Christians means to live in the tension between who we are in Christ and who the world says we are. We must live as people with two names. Every Christian lives as a person with two names. One given by God, that's our true identity, and one given by our culture that defines us, whether it's around work or around ethnicity or around economics or around a sports team, whatever that identity is that the world has given you. It is not accidental that you're feeling pressure to conform to the world. Now, we live in that tension between the two names. We live as as Christians in exile. This tension can be resolved. You can easily resolve it by simply conforming to the world, and many Christians do that. So they forget their name that God has given them, and they live simply based on the identity that the culture gives them. That's one way to resolve that tension. The other way to resolve this tension is to completely disengage and to leave the culture, and to have as as little contact as you can with the culture. Many Christians do that. They create their own worlds. They create their own enclaves of, of Christian culture. Now, the extreme example of that is the Amish, but many of us evangelical Christians essentially live like the Amish. We have almost no contact with the secular culture. Now, that's a way to resolve that tension, of course, but I don't think either way is what God wants us to do. I think God wants us to live in tension. I think God wants us to live under pressure. I think God wants us to figure out how to navigate this very complicated life, life in exile, remaining a Christian, not compromising your Christian identity, remembering your name, and yet still working a government job for the empire of Babylon. How do you do that? It's extremely difficult. And so we need the wisdom of Scripture, we need the wisdom of the church, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to figure out how to do that well, but knowing that it's risky, knowing that it's complicated. When we lived in Chicago and we pastored a church in Chicago, there was a group of Christian kids. It was, it was a very strange experience for me. So we're in this, this tiny city church in, in, in Chicago, and one Sunday, like a bunch of young kids show, Christian kids show up. So after, right after college, early 20s, they just show up, you know, and they get the bulletins and they bring their Bibles. And, 
And as we get to know them, we realize that there's a group of them that graduated from a Christian college in Oklahoma, and they decided to move up to Chicago to pursue a career in comedy. Interesting. They feel, they feel called to be in this world of comedy, to be a Christian witness, but also to be funny and to do it well. And so they're looking for a church to support them in that. And we were that church. And I was able to, to shepherd these, these 20-somethings through, over a period of several years as they navigated this world of comedy as Christians. How do you do that? I had no answers for them, by the way. They were asking questions. That I, I don't, how do you do that? I don't know. And so we kind of walked together and, and discovered, you know, how, how to do that well. So they went to Second City, which is this, this, this big kind of comedy school in Chicago where a lot of modern comedians come from. And so they're right in the middle. They're right at the heart of that world, and they're trying to be Christians in it. So there were at least four of them that kind of stuck around our church. Two of them, in the course of several years, abandoned their faith and focused on comedy and no longer Christians. And maybe even if they claim to be Christians today, they're certainly not walking with Christ and not participating in, in God's community. One of them gave up the comedy. God married, is raising his children as an elder in the church, doing well, but not engaging in that world anymore. Too hard. Only one of them, one of the four, 25% in my experience, is doing that well, is actually remaining in the world of the arts still today, is functioning as a Christian. And if you talk to him, he will tell you there is a distinctively Christian way to be funny. It is not like the world. And he's discovering what it is. And he's, at, in fact, teaching classes now. He's teaching comedy workshops in, in, in Dallas right now. How to be funny. How to be funny in a Christian way. What do you do with that creative energy as a Christian? But it is incredibly complicated to do that. So 50% abandon the faith, in my experience. One abandons the pursuit of comedy, and only one is trying to navigate it, and I think is doing it really, really well. Now, to be fair, the arts, maybe especially comedy, is one of the hardest fields to do that in. Politics is a close second, I think. And then you got the academia is probably, in my view, is the third. <laughs> so if you're in one of those three fields, it is so hard. It is so hard to do it well, but we must be doing it. I think God calls us to be in those areas. Not as a punishment to us, throwing us into exile, into comedy, but putting us there to be a witness and to show God's sense of humor, which is different, and to be the kind of person that is able to, to navigate this very complex life in a distinctly Christian, faithful way. It is difficult, but it is possible. And I think God wants us to do that. And so as we live in this tension, at times we will experience positive response and even praise from our culture. There are Christian people in, in lots of different fields in our culture that are considered to be the best in their fields. And they are given praise sometimes. They are given affirmation from the world sometimes that they are doing really well. But at other times, there is rejection and persecution. And as we enter those fields, as we enter this world of 
today's culture, we must embrace the possibility of both. You may do really well, and you may be the funniest comedian because because you're a Christian, not because you're doing church humor, but because I want to specify, when I say a Christian sense of humor, I don't mean church sense of humor, okay? It doesn't have to happen in church for Christians. I'm talking about something that is objectively funny, not just to Christians, but to everybody because of God's creative spirit in you. But you can be that, and you can get a lot of acclaim from the culture. But you will also be rejected and persecuted, most likely. And we see both of these dynamics in Daniel. Daniel serves well. In fact, at the end of our chapter, it's acknowledged that they're ten times better than the other people in court. Again and again, he proves himself to be more skilled and more wise than his peers. And yet, he's also thrown into the lion's den. Both are true, and we don't know which will dominate your experience. I don't know that. But you need to be ready, and I need to be ready for both. Now, I'd like to address maybe just a little more specifically those Christians that are coming out of college, or maybe they are in college, or maybe you're a younger Christian, you're trying to navigate this world of career, and you're trying to figure out how to do that. I'm going to encourage you to consider the example of these four people in Daniel. They are the brightest and the most promising people. And the world, because of that, is putting a lot of pressure on them to conform. If the world can get you the brightest, the youngest, the most influential, the most promising people in the church, if the world can get you, many other people will follow you. If you compromise, other people will compromise simply because you have. But if you persevere, if you remain faithful, you will affect a large portion of the church and you will encourage them to pursue your kind of career and to do what you're doing. So when you're thinking about education, when you're thinking about career, I I want you to go into it. Yes, go into it as a Christian. But consider the kind of influence that you have on others. Would you resolve to embrace the tension of life in exile with all its pressures. So don't isolate yourself. Don't leave. Remain in that world. But would you also resolve to live faithfully, even as you engage that culture? And it's not easy. There are lots of questions. Now let me, let me quote a young Christian. This is a Christian in the culture. Her name is Tara Isabella Burton. And Burden writes about her experience of coming to grips with her Christian identity while still being embedded in the social culture of New York City. This is what she says. For the first time, I had to ask myself questions, not just about what it all meant in an abstract way, but what each decision, from posting on Instagram to choosing an outfit to drinking too much to hosting a party to committing to monogamy to planning a wedding, meant for me as a Christian, in the framework of my Christianity. If God was real, if Christ really did come back from the dead, then nothing else mattered except insofar as it reflected that one hideous, impossible truth. At times, she says, I did not think I could stand it. How could I make any decision, even leave the house, so shackled to the moral weight of every choice I made? How could I be a Christian all the time and still have a glass of Prosecco 
still go to the goth club, still live in a largely secular, intensely bohemian New York that I both loved and no longer knew how to find my place in. What she is describing is a real struggle of a Christian that decides to be engaged in the culture and yet decides to be faithful to their Christian identity. And as she writes about it, you realize it's not easy. There's a lot of questions. And and those questions are coming at you and there's weight behind those questions. But this is life in exile. This is life in Babylon. And each generation needs to determine how to navigate the tension between the two names. What is the appropriate level of engagement for this generation with this culture? And what is the appropriate distance from certain aspects of the culture today? There is no universal answer to that. There is no list. There is no levels to which it's appropriately to engage in a particular part of the culture before you need to keep your distance. There are general principles. There's the Holy Spirit who will guide you. There's the gospel who will empower, that will empower you. But you have to figure out how to do it in your circumstance, in your life. Each generation applies the wisdom of Scripture, the wisdom of the book of Daniel, to their situation. So, for example, when you look at the early church, so first, second century church, they had a list of jobs that were completely unacceptable for Christians. And you would get disciplined in your church. You would not get baptized, for example, if you were a soldier, or if you were in the theater, or if you were an athlete. You would not get baptized. The church will not accept you as a true Christian because they would automatically assume that you are in sin by simply being in those jobs. Now, some of those jobs today, we would say, those are desirable careers. To be in the military today, for many Christians, that's a desirable career. To be in the arts is a desirable career for many. To be an athlete is a dream for many Christians. What's changed? Well, the culture has changed. What it meant then to be in the army is very different from what it means now to be in the army. It's different. And so the church has to adjust. We have to reevaluate. We have to reassess. We have to figure out which jobs are off limits to us now, because there are some, and which aren't. And we need the creative wisdom of the Holy Spirit to do that. So resolve to live in tension and yet figure out what it looks like today in light of the gospel. Now, as we do that, the book of Daniel gives us some much-needed guidance. Daniel and his friends, they try to live faithfully under the pressures of life in exile, and they do that by rejecting certain cultural practices while still maintaining certain Christian practices. We will learn later in the book about Daniel's practice of regular prayer, for example, when he prays certain times a day in a certain place. We'll learn about the the importance of their own community. Those guys knew each other. They spent time together. They prayed together. That's church. That was important to them. We'll learn about David's engagement with Scripture. Those are positive practices that are distinctly Christian practices that they maintained. But there were some cultural practices that they decided to reject to stay faithful in that culture. So right here in our text, we read that they rejected to eat from the king's table. It's a practice. Every day they would have been eating something that was brought to them, and they say, no, we're not going to do that. Now, why? Because practices 
our routines, our lifestyle actually shapes who we are. So let me quote from James K. Smith. He writes about the human heart functioning as a compass that needs to be regularly calibrated to be directed toward God. We learn to love by being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. Now let me quote from him, and and I'll try to explain this, because I think this is a crucial piece to understanding how to live in our culture. Smith says, Now here's the crucial insight for Christian formation and discipleship. Not only is this learning by practice the way our hearts are correctly calibrated, but it is also the way our loves and longings are misdirected and miscalibrated. Not because our intellect has been hijacked by bad ideas, but because our desires have been captivated by rival visions of flourishing. And that happens through practices, not propaganda. Our desires are caught more than they are taught. All kinds of cultural rhythms and routines are, in fact, rituals that function as pedagogies or teaching tools of desire, precisely because they tacitly and covertly train us to love a certain version of the kingdom, teach us to long for some rendition of the good life. These aren't just things we do. They do something to us. Now, I understand this is a little complex here, but what Smith is saying is that we're all involved in cultural liturgies that shape our hearts. We're all doing something that are routine, rhythmical things in life, that are constant things in our lives, and those practices actually shape our hearts. It is not only the content that we are receiving from the world, the information, the knowledge, the teaching. It is also the practices that we participate in. So if you do something regularly, if it is part of your lifestyle, if it's part of your routine, it is calibrating your heart to love something. For example, going to church every week orients your heart towards a vision of life that centers on God. You may not be getting anything from the sermon, like today, for example. You may not be understanding anything I'm saying so far. And still, the fact that you are here, the fact that you are here every week, shapes your heart. It molds you. It calibrates your heart towards God. Even if your mind is not comprehending, your life is shaping your desires. If you read Scripture every day, especially if you read it at a certain time every day, so every morning you get up and you read Scripture and you pray, you may not be getting a specific insight from Scripture that morning, but the fact that you are reading it is shaping you. The fact that you are praying is shaping you towards a certain kind of life, a certain vision of the kingdom. It's doing it to you even if you are not aware of what you are doing. So these daily things, these weekly things, these annual things that we are participating in, these rhythms, these cultural liturgies, as Smith calls them, they shape us. They shape our desires. So Daniel and his friends, they accept their new names. They accept their new training. They accept their new jobs. But they refuse the king's food and wine. Now look at verses 8 through 16. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, my lord the king, who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in that matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Why do they refuse to eat the good food of the king's table? Why? Well, some people say it's a ritual issue. They were afraid to defile themselves ritually because it may have been offered to idols, it may have been um, not kosher according to the Jewish law. But that doesn't make sense. Wine is not prohibited in the law, for example. All the other things, including the vegetables, would have been offered to idols anyway. So that doesn't make sense to me. Now, some contemporary Christians are saying, well, this is just a way to stay fit and to lose weight. And so let's, do, let's all get together as a church and we'll do the Daniel fast. Now, let me tell you, if you are consistent with Scripture, you will do the Daniel fast to gain weight, not to lose it. They got fatter, right, the text says. They're fatter. Why? Because God is sustaining them, and God has actually given them more calories through the vegetables they're eating than through the meat that the other people are getting. This is a supernatural thing. This is not a, net. This is not a scheme. This is not a technique for you to lose weight. Please, if you want to eat vegetables for other reasons and health reasons, and there are reasons, legitimate reasons for that, do that and be blessed, and it's a good thing for you. But don't bring Daniel into it, okay? <laughs> Daniel has nothing to do with that. Unless you say, I want to supernaturally gain more weight and show that God can give me more calories even through the vegetables, then do it and then call it a Daniel fast. But this is not what this is about. They're not concerned with their health. So what is it? Why are they refusing to eat the king's food and wine? Now, listen to one commentator. She says, It would seem that Daniel rejected the symbol of dependence on the king because he wished to be free to fulfill his primary obligations to the God he served. The defilement he feared was not so much a ritual as a moral defilement, arising from the subtle flattery of gifts and favors which entailed hidden implications of loyal support, however dubious the king's future policies might prove to be. Daniel looks at that and he says, this is one of the practices that will shape my affections, through which I can get attached to the king, to the Babylonian king, and break my allegiance to God. They did not want their affections to be captured by the world. So they refused to participate in this particular practice. So they reject this cultural liturgy of eating from the king's table. 
And they're saying, this will lead us astray. This will create a relationship with the king that will harm our relationship with God, our true king. This is why they're doing this. They're saying, we'll participate in these practices in the culture, but we will not participate in this particular one. This is a way of of fasting for them. It's a cultural fast. They're rejecting a particular part of the culture because to them, this will mean leaving the faith. And so they're making their stand here. Now my question, and this is a very difficult question to ask for me, what cultural liturgy do you need to oppose in your life? And it's going to be different. And the point isn't that that particular practice is evil or it's wicked or it's sinful. That's not what I'm saying. It's not evil to eat the king's food. It's not wrong to drink his wine. That's not the problem. The problem is that it signifies something. It shapes their heart in a certain way. It draws them away from God in a certain way. And so they're saying no to that. So what is it in your life that you need to say no to? Not because it's evil, but because it has that kind of pull in your heart. Because it has the power to shape your affections. Because it has the power to redirect, recalibrate your compass. And direct you to a different kind of life and a different kind of kingdom. I cannot tell you what it is. I can barely tell myself what it is. This is so hard to figure out. But would you wrestle with it? Would you try to figure it out? Which cultural liturgy do you need to reject? Now, I'll give you some ideas. And when I say that, let me say I'm participating in many of these, okay? I'm not saying they're evil. But I think for some of us, some of these things need to be rejected. So, for example... Avoiding a particular piece of technology may be a cultural practice in your life that you need to say no to. Not celebrating a particular holiday. Not cultivating a presence on social media. Not watching the NFL every Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. Not watching cable news every night. Because it is a liturgy, you know that, right? It's very close to church. There's music, and there's preaching, and sometimes there's giving, if you're paying for cable. Be careful with those. Those are cultural liturgies. It's not about the content as much as it is about getting you into the practice. It's reshaping you. Maybe not getting your daily coffee at Starbucks. That's a liturgy. Maybe refusing to work on Sundays, which, by the way, would would exclude you from several careers today. But maybe that's the stand you take, and you say, I'm not going to participate in that cultural liturgy. What is it? How will you fast from cultural liturgies of the world? Now, we'll see later how Daniel also complements it by including Christian practices. You have to do both, but start by examining the practices you are involved in in your culture and see what you need to reject. And finally, I know I've tired you out, I know, and I'm dealing with these weighty issues, and I understand this is complex, and we'll revisit these things as we go through this series, but I needed to start here. I needed to give us a paradigm for life, which is life in exile. I needed to talk about the pressures that the world puts on us. I also needed to talk to you about how we combat it a little bit, what practices we affirm and what we reject. 
But none of that really matters unless you have the power to do this. Because it's fine to talk about it, and there are great books written about it, and it's great to have these conversations, even to preach on it. But unless you have the power to navigate the world in the way that it will allow you to stay faithful and still be fruitful and still be beneficial to the culture around you, to the people around you, this is not of much help. So how can we stay faithful in exile? Considering all the pressures, all the ways the world is forcing a new identity on us, all the practices that reorient our hearts away from God, how can we do it? Well, here's the power. Brothers and sisters, we serve another king. Daniel and his friends could refuse Nebuchadnezzar's food because they knew they had another king and they had another table. And while they served in the Babylonian court and served very well, they remained loyal to their true king. So let me tell you in closing about this king. He is a king with two names. Jesus is called the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is one person with two natures, fully God, fully human, uniquely positioned to help us figure this out because of our sin as punishment for our idolatry, our wickedness, Jesus went into exile. The only true God who deserves eternal worship, get this, lived among people who preferred to worship money, acclaim, power, and pleasure. And he came to live with us. Jesus experienced the tension of the exilic life, but he did not conform to the world. When the devil tempted him in the wilderness, Jesus did not give in. When they wanted to make him king in Jerusalem, he refused the crown. When Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas pressured him to submit to their rule, to, to just come into their empire and to say, I'll, I'll just be with you guys. He preferred death to that. But Jesus also did not separate from the culture. He lived among the people. The incarnation teaches us that Jesus came to be with us in a very meaningful way. Not just because he had a physical body, he had a physical nature, he had a whole human nature. He experienced the whole human experience, the whole life. And so he saw the welfare of the culture that he was in. He healed and he taught and he loved and he fed people. He brought goodness, he brought flourishing, he brought welfare to people around him, to the culture that he was in. And yet he was proclaiming the coming of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God that would eventually destroy all the empires of the world. Do you know this king? Because if you don't know this king, you will worship another king. You will. And it will likely be the king of Babylon. Do you know this king, the king with two names, the king with two natures, the king in exile, the king who, who came not to separate, but also not to conform, the king who lived in tension? By following Jesus now, by submitting to him as our true king, we can receive power to live as exiles until he returns. Our hearts, captivated by the vision of the crucified and risen king, 
are shaped into loving him and remaining faithful to him no matter what the pressures are. It is who Jesus is and what he has done for us that is our identity. And friends, it is better than anything the world promises. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you worship him? Is he your true king? Because if you don't have that relationship, if you don't have that identity, you may have grown up in the church, but you have no chance in the world. Because the power comes through that relationship with Jesus. It comes through your identity in Christ. And now, this is a cool thing we're going to do that we do every week. We're going to come to his table. Why do we do that every week? It's a liturgy. It's a practice. And this practice of coming to his table and eating his food and being nourished by him and expressing our loyalty to him actually shapes our hearts. So when you come to the table and you take the bread and you take the cup and you remember what Jesus has done for you and you affirm your faith in him, your heart is a little bit better calibrated to love him. And when you go back into the world, you go back into the culture that forces you to accept a new identity, you will remember that your identity is in him because he died and rose for you and he is the coming king and his kingdom will prevail. So let's do that together as one of the practices, one of the liturgies we observe to shape our hearts. If you're not a Christian, if you don't have Jesus as your king, I call you to repentance today. There is no better king. The king of Babylon will never do what you want him to do for you. But Jesus will bless you. Jesus will keep you. Jesus will give you the life that you need now and forever. He will not fail you because he died for you. The one who died for you has not withheld anything from you. And so you can trust him and you can walk in his victory.